This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Why do some books make readers angry, while other books have readers falling off the chair, screaming, laughing? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, it's a June bank holiday weekend, so I hope you're all taking it nice and easy, nice and slow, and making the most of the few days off, enjoying a nice bit of fresh air and some decent nosh. Well, I'm overworking in Haiti for this and next week, so I'm taking the opportunity of replaying you some of my favourite interviews from over the year. So on today's show, we're going to meet with two very talented, and I think hugely original writers, the godless rationalist Ian McCune, and the wonderfully outrageous, if a little perverse, Philip Roth. Two men I would love to share a dinner and a decent bottle of vino with. Okay, first up, we're going to get to grips with British novelist Ian McCune. When describing what makes Ian McEwan such a brilliant writer, British literary critic Matt Ridley writes, McCune gives you a sense of what it is to be someone else. In a good Ian McCune novel, not only does the reader know what the character is thinking, the reader knows what the character thinks another character is thinking. Now, whether you agree with Matt's view or not, one thing is for sure, Ian McCune's exact and erudite writing has consistently challenged, provoked and engaged readers for the last 30 years. And despite all the media storms, he is arguably one of the most significant British novelists working today. Well, a very interesting collection of essays on Ian McCune has just been published by Sebastian Gross and dedicated readers of McCune's fiction can look forward to essays on topics such as Ian McCune and the modernist consciousness and engage in questions of morality, place and history. Well, a few weeks ago, I got a hold of Sebastian at the University of Roehampton and had a very stimulating chat on the complicated mindscape and imagination of the lovely Ian McCune. I asked Sebastian why opinions differ on the quality of Ian's books. There's lots of projection going on. So like, like you say, something about ownership, people continuously have opinions, but also project their own kinds of versions of McEwen upon the actual writer. And, and this is quite problematic because people feel that they can attack him and that he's kind of uh, sometimes even a scapegoat. And he's such a controversial author as well. I mean, there are different kinds of examples of, of controversy that started, for instance, uh, at the start of his career when he was writing about incest uh, and paedophilia and castration when he, he got this kind of nickname called Ian Macabre and, and, and that kind of legacy has kind of continued and this, there's this kind of he is this kind of pivotal figure within our contemporary culture and therefore people appropriate him but also think that they can mould in a very subjective way how they feel about him. And I think that sometimes leads to interesting but also wrong perceptions of the writer. 
Now, I'll have to admit from the get-go here that I'm a huge fan of Ian McCune. I've read pretty much most of his books and I find it incredible to think that people can categorise that there are two types of Ian McCune books, that there's a McCune light and then there's a more heavyweight one. Let's say comparing Amsterdam and Atonement. I think that is absolutely missing the point. Am I missing the point or are they missing the point? No, I think think you're right in the sense that there are certain themes, and there are quite, quite a few of them in, in McEwen, it's thinking about the cities, thinking about enlightenment, rationality, it's thinking about human connections, emotions, and certain psychopathologies, sort of, sort of mental diseases that are present throughout his work. And, and sometimes he gives them a particular form. So if you look at, I don't know, the novellas like uh, like Amsterdam, like you mentioned, and On Chesil Beach, these, these novels kind of feel, or these novellas really, really feel lighter. Um, but they're not really. They they grapple with the same kind of thematics that are present also in what people would consider is, is kind of harder and darker work and, and longer work such as Atonement. Can I ask you about your publication, The Making of London? Because you look at the significance of London as a character in literature. And if we look at Saturday, which was a very interesting and much criticised book of E. McCune's, it really cleverly places a city as a character in a book. It's a great joy to talk about city. I'm kind of an immigrant, as it were. I'm I'm an import Londoner, as it were. And and I think that um, McEwen is very much attuned to various traditions of writing uh, London and writing big cities. And and the idea is that the city is not really a material construct, but it's kind of an imaginary structure. It's built up out of intertext, uh, other pieces of writing that have particular traditions. So McEwen chooses a a very uh, interesting variant of that, which which also goes back to Joyce, to Joyce's writing of Dublin and Ulysses, for instance. So it's kind of a, a recoding or a reimagination of the city in terms of its traditions, cultural influences, but also through uh, text. So in a way, what McEwen does, um, and this harks back to, to James Joyce and, and, and Ulysses, is to create a city that is partly imaginary and textual in its, in its construction. And I know lots of critics took great exception to the fact that the central character in Saturday was not just a talented neurosurgeon and, you know, played squash and could make a nice fish casserole, that he actually could have sex with his wife, who he's married to for over 20 years, that he could appreciate the ordinary normal stuff and that they found that a bit pedestrian and a bit simple and not very gritty or emotionally demanding to read. Well, it's interesting. One of my colleagues, Peter Childs, who is also kind of an Ian McEwan scholar, uh, pointed out to McEwan uh, that the novel takes place on the 15th of February 2003. The day before that is Valentine's Day, as we all know. Kind of pointed out that um, this seems to be absent from uh, the very mind of Perone. He's probably a very rational man, but uh, but maybe also has a very high sex drive because we would presume that if, if there is this Valentine's Day, he, w- he would have had intercourse with his wife and he does so uh, the next day twice. So I thought that was quite interesting fact. Uh, about Saturday itself. And of course he works in a high stress environment. He's a neurosurgeon and mm. I know that Ian had spent I think several months in, in an operating theatre watching mm. operations to actually get a real grip on things. And, and it does come out in, in his writing like he does tremendous research. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, some, some people don't really like the way. He's kind of like uh, uh, a method actor in that sense. He really investigates all of his characters and depressions and the emotional life in, in, in depth and you see this also in the children act 
McEwen's new novel, uh, where he, he clearly has researched how the law operates, how judges operate, how legal systems operate, uh, in, in quite a bit of detail. And, and in Saturday, uh, McEwen was given flack over this endless depiction of a squash game, with, which seemed really tedious. And, and perhaps people feel the same about uh, the Children Act, which has got uh, a number of cases, and he turns them inside out, and um, it, it, it's constantly kind of looking at how these cases work uh, very intricately. Uh, but I think this is quite interesting in the sense that this is not a courtroom drama in a way. This is not so much about the intricacy within the courtroom, it's about how the law operates. The law as a, a set of uh, memories, as it were, the idea that law is a storage system of, of, of stories uh, behind which real people kind of uh, live, as it were. Um, and he's deeply interested in, in that kind of line of argument. And I suppose one of the trademark characteristics of equality in McCune book is <clears throat> the importance of time and place and of history. You know, time is a character in his book almost. Mm-hmm. So is that sense of place. So is the, the impact of history and how characters have to almost stand up to history and <laughs> challenge history in some ways. Well, that's very interesting that you, you say that because I think for me, McEwen is someone who's deeply engaged with his contemporary. I mean, uh, when you look at all, this, all of his kind of uh, novels, um, they often respond to core issues that determine our present. And this goes from uh, the end of the, uh, uh, the Cold War in Black Dogs. It goes to climate change in, in solar. Um, it also goes uh, for the Iraq war in, in Saturday, for instance. So it's both this kind of engagement with the contemporary, but placing that in a historical uh, grounding, as it were, and making sure that all these contemporary issues should be seen in a historical light. And I think that is quite uh, a feat that, that McEwen is able to, to kind of pull this off. So at the one uh, level, you're kind of reading the world as it is today. But at the same time, he unfolds this, unpicks this, and shows that all these contemporary issues uh, have returned to us in different versions, in different ways, in different times. So history is deeply important and he disguises this, I think, through contemporary issues. And he certainly isn't scared of pulling the rug under the reader because Mm. when you read Atonement, (laughs) uh, certainly, and Enduring Love, Mm. the pictures that you have of Mm. the key characters and where you see the narrative going and your almost ownership of the story as you're reading the story, yeah. And then how suddenly he kicks you back and he yeah. challenges your understanding of his book. It's, it's remarkable. I love it. You want to <laughs> kick his head in and um, you feel quite brain dead and you feel yeah, quite betrayed absolutely. by him. But that's mm-hmm. the beauty of Ian McCune that he slaps you across the face, but you love him. Well, absolutely. I mean, he's, but he's been getting uh, quite a bit of flack for having all these kind of nasty twists, I think. There's a, a literary critic called James Wood who said that um, when you finish an Ian McEwan novel, you feel kind of less innocent because your emotional investment in the characters and in the story is always kind of, kind of subverted at the end. And you, you lose a bit of your innocence and you come out a little bit more corrupted when you finish an Ian McEwan novel. So I think that uh, some of your listeners will, will have the same sense. And this is kind of the danger of reading McEwan. He's certainly not an, an innocent writer, as it were. And he is kind of picking up on uh, corruption and innocence. And this also goes, obviously, for the Children Act. And, and he's throughout his oeuvre, he's very much interested in, in notions of innocence and, and often kind of seeing how innocence is 
probably not possible in a post-lapsarian world, in, in our world. And there lies the beauty, because the gritty mm. places he goes on friendship, on sexuality, mm. on fear and vulnerability. You confront your own morality by reading and Ian McCune book. Now, yeah. I have to pick a bone with you. You've brought out a really interesting compilation of critical essays on Ian McCune. It's called Contemporary Critical Perspectives. And it opens with a very interesting forward by the academic and writer Matt Ridley, mm. where he says that traditionally Ian McCune is for men and not for women. Mm. Now, is that guy mad? Because I think that the, the rich emotional experiences that we go mm. through in life, the dark sides, and as I said, the grit, he explores that so beautifully in his writing that how could that not appeal to women? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that uh, the foreword that Matt Ridley wrote for that volume that you, you just mentioned gives a kind of biased perception of McEwen. And Ridley is a scientist, he's a science writer, and he wants to portray McEwen as merely kind of a, a scientist, this kind of uber-rational writer. But this is, this is a, a false depiction, I think. McEwen, throughout his life, I think, in the late 70s already, um, has proclaimed himself uh, a feminist. He has um, always kind of um, thought about the role of women, and he's fought for their cause. He's been doing that since the late 70s in various ways. And I think if you read um, the last novel, The Children Act, he kind of depicts uh, a woman. And, and I'm not sure what you feel about this, but um, but he's very good at that. I, I know various authors who have tried to write women protagonists, male authors who try to write women protagonists, um, and it just doesn't work. But I think that McEwen is able to do that. And how would you compare his writing to Barnes mm. or Ami? He is definitely, he's got various characteristics that set him out uh, from, from his contemporaries, I think. Um, one one of these is, is his atheism, and this is this is theme, and we know this about McEwen, but this is much more expressed, I think, over the past few novels. I mean, he was at this um, a literary festival that I organised for my research project, the Memory uh, Network, um, and he was in conversation with a sociologist and a psychologist Paul Bloom, um, who put him to the test. And this is this is a sociological test for atheists, um, where they see if an atheist would sell his soul to the devil. If if there is no religion, if there is no God or the devil, then it would be very easy um, for an atheist to sign a contract with the devil. But McEwen refused to do that. And and I think he is a writer without any sense of superstition. He is extremely uh, rational. So I think uh, that that is, is a characteristic that really determines his writing. I know he was a very close friend of the late Christopher Hitchens. Mm. I think Julian Barnes and Martin and me were, they have all been pals together for a quite long time. Yeah. But maybe what Ian does best is he can play science as a character in his book and Absolutely. the rational mind. And he delves into what is the rational mind mm. and the irrationality within the rational mind. Yeah, there's, there's two responses because I think people over-egg this idea of rationality in the end. I mean, he is an atheist, but he also is also uh, aware that we are all kind of uh, human beings locked inside bodies and that our, uh, our beings are limited, that our consciousness, our being is, is also limited. Uh, if you look at the Children Act, this protagonist, Fiona May, the high court judge, tries to be rational. She, she tries to kind of have this clear-minded uh, way of thinking. But at the same time, her own private life is constantly butting in. Her own subjective uh, and emotional life attack 
this rationality. So I think that the way in which people say that McEwen is just this, this rationalist, it is more subtle. It is qualified, I think. So you get this in, um, in Saturday as well, where people say, oh, we, I don't want to read about this for neuroscientists because uh, it's just boring. He's got this kind of medical mind, a curative mind. But at the same time, McEwen, through all sorts of rhetorical tricks, is distancing himself from, from Perone. So I think that's also... Uh, uh, important to keep in mind. Sebastian, mm. can I ask you about one of the chapters in your collection of essays? It's called Words of War. War mm. of Words, Atonement and the Question of Plagiarism. It's yeah. by Natasha Alden mm. and she's looking at the relationship between history and fiction and mm-hmm. she says, and I quote, Atonement demonstrates what fiction can do with history that history cannot. And mm. she teases out issues in relation to plagiarism and atonement. Can you talk me through that story? Mm. There's the argument that what writers do best is rewrite really good stories and do them better. Mm. Whether you can say there's no such thing as an original story. I, I think what, what uh, Natasha Alden discovered is that McEwen um, has been basing uh, based his novel Atonement on historical source material. And he's been been reworking that in creative ways. And this is what she means with the idea that um, historians who are are just uh, rooting a narrative in fact cannot kind of bring into subjective perception, cannot go into finer intricacies of how memory, how human memory kind of reshapes uh, a a particular logic. So I think what Natasha is is doing in, in that chapter is to show uh, the difference between historical material and the job of the novelist, which is to kind of uh, not give an overarching view of, of history, but to show the human element of history and, and how uh, atonement is exactly that. It is kind of um, recreating the, the, the ostensible, objective, factual nature of history into a subjective history of atonement. And what about the experience of temporality, though? In atonement, mm. or even in Saturday, do you think he's yes. pushed? Do you think he's pushed the boundaries of modernism? Do you think he's done something new, or or has he been very clever and reworked the styles of, as you mm. mentioned, James Joyce or Virginia Woolf or other yeah, sure. great writers? Well, McEwen is interesting because, uh, unlike some of the contemporaries that you just mentioned, Martin Amis and, and Julian Barnes, McEwen was never really interested in postmodernism, which was this kind of idea that you can you can always have to flaunt uh, the fictionality and the fictional processes of fiction writing that you kind of deconstruct that kind of process. McEwen has always been, almost in a schizophrenic way, very fond of the American realist tradition of, for instance, Updike, uh, but also reworking that through the lens of, of some of the subjective stream of consciousness of the modernist poetic of Joyce and Virginia Woolf. I mean, one of the um, interesting things about um, the Children Act, and you may have spotted this, of course, is that the plot of uh, the Children Act comes from James Joyce's novella or, or short story, The Dead, where there's a woman telling her husband uh, that she no longer feels this great passion for her, um, but uh, but but, there, but she does tell him about this passionate boy who has died for her. So in very uh, strange ways, McEwen sneaked um, the Joycean legacy back into our world, into the present world. So I thought that was a um, quite interesting way of, of, of thinking about how modernism works in 
McEwan's latest novel. And whether you think the story works or not, at least he's shown that he doesn't take himself so dreadfully seriously in one way because he's reinventing himself the whole time. Whether critics or readers look at it as McEwan light or Mm. they feel that they want the more trademark, gritty, dark, gloomy interior monologues. If a writer consistently pushes out the same old stuff all the Mm. time, there's no imagination in that. And as a reader, it's nice to see a writer change and mature. Some would mm. say that McCune has got a little bit more softer, a bit more romantic, a bit more feelingful. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I think he has always been like that. Mm. He just has maybe used different words or scenarios. Absolutely. I mean, but, but just to go back to Solar and, and, and your point about being being softer and also maybe using Uber, it is quite easy to, to take a particular argument and that the world is the doom and gloom argument and write this dystopia uh, in which the world is kind of post-apocalyptic and we're all going to die. Um, but McEwen is a writer and he's looking for an or- original line of argument and also in, he looks for original literary genres to kind of engage with these issues. And he, in this case, he chose, I don't know, the form of a, a farce of, of comedy. And, and that is quite interesting in itself, of course. And in terms of moral menace, is he Britain's greatest writer of the 20th century, do you think? Or am I just losing the run of myself? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I've been having quite a few debates about um, which writers are still read, in, even in the post-war period. So when you think of people like Anthony Burgess, if you, if you think of uh, Iris Murdoch, Muriel Spark, uh, even Angela Carter... I mean, these people are are still read, but their reputation is not as uh, great as you as you would think. So, at the moment, we could say that, that McEwen is, is definitely uh, a great author. He he kind of determines uh, what we read. He he kind of determines how we think of fiction, and he he, he determines the debate about fiction. But who knows um, in in fifty years' time whether he will still be read? I think I think personally he will be read, um, and that's partly based on. Um, his weaving, his organic weaving of, a, of an oeuvre that, um, that encapsulates our moment so we can grow and live through as a, a, a Ian McEwan uh, over 30, 40 years as it were. And whether you like his writing style or not, you can't deny the man the fact that he's very, very smart. He's, he's extremely smart. I mean, McEwan was talking to uh, Paul Bloom at the literary festival that I just mentioned. Um, and he, he, he's both extremely well read he's deeply curious about the world uh, and this goes from from law to neuroscience wars so he's deeply deeply engaged uh with the world and his his depth and breadth of knowledge is astounding and, and this party probably will uh contribute to will be reading him in let's say 30 40 years and final question sebastian and it's a bit of a lazy crappy tricky one so please forgive me best and worst McCune. I think some of the early work, some of the early, uh, what we should call emaciated stories, uh, to me now feel quite thin. I mean, I love The Comfort of Strangers and The Cement Garden, um, the really early novellas, as it were. But I prefer Atonement. I think date, uh, the scope of Atonement, that really sets uh, that novel out as McEwan's greatest. Six to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. 
I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Now, I hope you're all making the most of the bank holiday weekend and doing nada in terrific style. Well, I've jumped ship and I've done a bunk and I'm overworking in Haiti for the next couple of weeks. So I'm replaying you what I describe as the best of angry writing from over the year. Next up, a writer of extreme obscenity and wonderful versatility, one of America's most experimental writers, the incredible, if a little rough, Philip Roth. Philip Roth is arguably one of the most honoured authors of his generation. His books have been twice awarded the National Book Award, twice the National Book Critics Circle Award and three times the Penn Faulkner Award. In 1997, Roth received a Pulitzer Prize for his novel American Pastoral, which featured Roth's fictional alter ego, the not-so-pleasant but hugely entertaining Nathan Zuckerman. In 2001, The Human Stain was awarded the W.H. Smith Literary Award for the best book of the year. And in 2011, Roth was awarded the Man Booker International Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Fiction on the world stage. Interestingly, this award led to one of the feminist Man Booker judges, Carmel Khalil, author and founder of the feminist publishing house Virago, to resign in protest. In her resignation, she said, He goes on and on and on about the same subject in almost every single book. It's as though he's sitting on your face and you can't breathe. In 2012, Roth received the Prince of Astorius Prize for Literature and dramatically announced his retirement to a French magazine, saying, To tell you the truth, I'm done. Roth's books have been described as a kind of alienation that is enlivened and exacerbated by what binds it. And he has long been criticised as writing misogynistic female characters. His notable reads include Goodbye Columbus, Sabbath's Theatre, The Plot Against America, The Ghost Writer, I Married a Communist, Exit Ghost and Portnoy's Complaint. Well, over the weekend, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Dr. Michael Hines, the head of the English department at Matter Day Institute of Education at DCU and Professor Roz Posnack from the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University in New York to discuss this joint of American letters. I asked Michael how rough a writer is Philip Roth. I think at times he feels very rough indeed. Nevertheless, that's exactly what makes the the fiction so compelling. If you look back to something like Portnoy's Complaint, practically a chapterless book that ends with a a six-line or five-line scream and then with a punchline, that's rough in one sense, but nevertheless, the book coheres around that punchline. You know, you, you need to know how to read the roughness in order to, to get the benefit of it, I think. I mean, there are, there are times when you can feel a, a rage in Roth's writing and a kind of, you know, a, a kind of anger in that kind of way. And I think that gets communicated as well through his style. You know, moments in The Human Stain where you really feel like you're reading a very, very intelligent kind of rant uh, a rantograph rather than a paragraph, if you like. And, and that again, it, it's not that that's a stylistic weakness. It's actually part of the, the vigour of the writing, I think. And I suppose there lies the beauty, that chaotic engagement we can have with Philip Roth. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's hard to separate the rawness from the, from the beauty, certainly in a novel like uh, Sabbath's Theatre, mm-hmm. 1995. He's uh, really bringing, pushing the limits of, uh, the the ranting, the rawness, grief, rage, and turning it into something quite beautiful and, and uh, remarkable. Do you think it's fair to say that he is a Jewish-American writer? Do you think it's a fair criticism to just look at him in terms of Jewish identity? Or do you think that's missing the point? 
I think he's much more an international writer. I think the Jewish identity is certainly the first thing people uh, associate with Roth, but it's a limiting rubric and uh, way too simplistic, way too confining. It was something that was very much thrown in his face too uh, with Portner's complaint, you know, I, I think where you could see him railing against that confinement, but also the way in which he railed against it then got read as a betrayal. And You sometimes feel his own astonishment at the way that that all played out. Yeah, I think that he's gradually become canonical and that's sort of domesticated him in some ways. But I think people in general understand him as as a writer of global stature. A writer of global stature, Ross, but he certainly put Jewish American writing into the mainstream. He certainly wrote at the high point of Jewish American literature and created an audience for it, if a somewhat divided audience. You're absolutely right. We can't, we can't ever forget that, that the, f- the first two, Goodbye Columbus, the early uh, long short story, the title story of his first book, was a breakthrough in American writing. No one had had that kind of tender and satirical touch at the same time to portray the normalization of post-war American Jews now in the suburbs and uh, no longer preoccupied with um, anti-Semitism and uh, being prosperous, uh, acquisitive, no quote, normal, middle-class Americans. Can we talk a little bit about obscenity? Because a lot of readers who read <laughs> Philip Roth find him quite disgusting, find him quite revolting. They think he's very crude. People tend to find him a very obnoxious writer at best. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Obviously, we the great Alexander masturbating himself to hell. But, you know, do you think that's missing the point? <laughs> I mean, it's like um, if obscenity is definable as something that, you know, if you say that, oh, your reaction to something is that's obscene, that should never have been published, uh, that should never have been said, then then that's entirely, I suppose, in the eyes of the beholder. I wouldn't necessarily argue that, that Roth is innocent off the charge in that I think when Roth writes certain things... He probably understands very well that these things are going to to strike some people as certainly upsetting or perhaps obscene. You know, the the great joke in Portnoy's complaint about, you know, I wasn't so much having sex with these girls as sticking it up their background, you know, that that, that kind of joke, which, of course, is a, um, a remarkable moment in the book. It's also a very kind of chilling moment because it, it kind of, you know, creates this equation between the sexual act and kind of acts of political self-declaration that 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 finds its end game in in kind of ethnic wars and things like that. You know, the, the same kind of attitude to a degree. It actually is a disturbing assertion. It's it's a it's a joke, but it's a disturbing assertion that cuts to the very fabric of our civilization, if you like. He certainly puts a lot you, doesn't he? Reading Philip Roth, it's very always a very full-on read, very provocative, but deeply entertaining. He's hugely humorous. Yeah, I think uh, it's all inseparable, the obscenity, the humor, passion, and then the, the emotional power of it. None, none of it's extraneous or, or separable. And uh, I, again, I return to uh, Sabbath Theater. I think that's where um, I, I would call that his greatest novel. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a test case for people who either find it just too much and too disgusting. I mean, there's scenes of urination and um, all sorts of grotesque, disgusting bodily acts and attentions to to the body that um, people either see the point of it or uh, throw the book down after 40 pages. I certainly know plenty of people who've done that. That that book has, I think, 
acquired more and more kind of status, you know, in the intervening years. Because with things like the American Trilogy, it was easy enough to read those things as a great or grand statement and fit it into all sorts of other narrative. Whereas Sabbath Theatre connects to something almost outside of history, if you like. There's, And I think this is actually probably the most powerful strand in Roth's writing and goes towards this maybe this universal sense, this global sense of him, that he's connecting to something that's been kind of part of human apprehension since the ancients since, you know, Greek culture and, and before that, you know, this figure of the satyr, uh, the, a figure of desire that cannot be really repressed or understood or yeah. entirely dealt with other than on its own terms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And his portrayal Absolutely. of women, though, Ross, I am a Philip Roth fan, but there are uncomfortable times reading some passages because women don't mm-hmm. come out at all well in any of his books. And he seems to have had quite a checkered history with women. How much of the writer are we seeing in his books? I think that Roth has suffered greatly from the American, the glib American equation of an author and his characters. People on the street assumed he was Portnoy after that novel came out. They said, Jacqueline Suzanne, the, the famous trash novelist, said, I like to, I don't mind reading him, but I wouldn't shake his hand after eating Portnoy. In other words, she immediately assumed Roth was Portnoy. And uh, I think that this is a, a mistake that continues to this day. In other words, I don't, I'm, I'm indifferent to his personal relations with women. On the page, women, you're right, don't uh, come off well, but I think they don't come off well because Roth is writing about American male misogyny, which is basic to American culture. Hmm. And uh, he's acting as a kind of anthropologist or historian. Yeah, put it this way. I don't think anybody comes particularly well out of a Roth book. Yeah. Not absolutely. really. That, that's his vision. That's that's why he won't get the Nobel Prize, I don't think. Uh, mm. That that higher calling, <laughs> serving the ideals of civilization, that's supposed to be part of the kind of the deal with that. It's easy to complain about Roth as a, a solipsistic writer or something like that, but solipsism is a great theme. Um, it's a, a cultural dominant in America, <laughs> if you like, most particularly in the last twenty or thirty years. And as such, I don't think anybody understands it better than Roth. Or, or writes about it, but he writes about that state of mind so well. You know, he I would I wouldn't think of him as a storyteller as such, but somebody who can tap into a particular kind of afflicted consciousness. In terms of Nathan Zuckerman, who truly is a gem, if a totally dysfunctional character, but a memorable one at that, a one that has made so many readers laugh through the years, mm-hmm. and is great company mm-hmm. if. Very tricky. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, but my favourite Zuckerman is the de-sexed Zuckerman in the human stain at the end, <laughs> dancing around the Coleman silk. And then wonder, I mean, I think it's possibly the best the best two words um, Roth ever wrote was when he talks about Zuckerman and he says that he's free from the, the sexual caterwall. You know, as if finally <laughs> to be out beyond that. And now you can really write. Now you can be, you know, Theresius. Now you can connect to the Greeks, which is in many ways what he does towards the end with, you know, uh, uh, Nemesis and, and the humbling. You know, he becomes a great, a great ancient Greek writer. He almost had to destroy the main body of Zuckerman in order to, to get to that, you know. But that's an astonishing achievement. And Ross, do you think it's fair to compare him to the likes of Henry James or Saul Bellow? 
Well, I think that um, his career is remarkably similar to Henry James in that Henry James's greatest, most experimental, daring works came at the end of his near the end of his career, uh, the turn of the century into what he called the major phase of uh, the Ambassadors, the Wings of the Dove, the Golden Bowl. And Roth's career, I think, follows a similar trajectory. Um, he just keeps getting more daring and complex, um, starting, let's say, with the counterlife of 1986, but then with Sabbath Theater and the Human Stain. It deepens and deepens. So you almost never see that. Bellows' career is almost the opposite. His, yes. his work diminishes yes. in power. That's true for a Hemingway or a Faulkner as well. Roth is really quite different, quite strikingly in a Jamesian mold. And early on in his career, he actually writes a novel, When She Was Good, practically a kind of parody of James, you know, aspects of mm. James's style. It's mm. possibly the least obviously funny of Roth's novels, but as a as a serious attempt at doing practically the impossible, trying to emulate James's prose style, it's it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I think you're right. And also, when she was good, has a very powerful, relatively positive uh, female protagonist. She's uh, always ignored. It, it, she's not typical female figure you see in Roth. I mean, and her peculiar rage and sense of affliction. I mean, and. and not not a kind of unproblematic victimhood, but somebody who really has a kind of uh, singular power. And and Roth sometimes gives us characters like that, characters whose kind of resolves are, are practically inexplicable to us, you know, characters who seem to be able to kind of muster a kind of energy from nowhere. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, that um, that phrase that James has about his own art, that, that sacred rage. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. something like that applies very well to to Roth at times, you know, maybe profane rage is better for him or something yeah. like that. But that kind of energy is what I think he gets from gets from James. You know, James yeah. is accused of being solipsistic as well. But James is uh, yeah. the, one of the most passionate writers who ever lived because of their passionate commitment to mm-hmm. trying to get their art right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I think Philip Roth understands James in ways that very few people do. Most people think of him as genteel and prissy and unsexualized. Uh, Roth understands how, as you just said, how passionate and uh, emotional James is, and his novels are about that. And, and since Letting Go, where, where Roth's first full novel, Letting Go, is about a, a set of graduate students, one of whom is uh, preoccupied with, with Henry James, especially Portrait of a Lady, and the, and the novel is a kind of rewriting of the Portrait of a Lady. Ross, were you surprised when he announced his retirement, given the fact that he has inspirationally written certainly some of his best books in the last 10 years? If we look at the American trilogy, he wrote most of those books in his 70s, so it's it's hugely impressive. And mm-hmm. writing seems to have been quite a challenge for him in ways as well. He's o- often spoken how difficult he's found the writing process that it hasn't come easy. So you were, were you surprised when he announced his retirement because he's giving up the fight? Yeah, I was completely surprised. I thought that he lived to write and that it was somehow some kind of desire to a- end his life by retiring from from writing, but what I hear from his friends is that he's never been happier and that he <laughs> is constantly reading American history and uh, canonical literature that he's loved for decades and he has no desire to return to writing. I find that I find that fascinating and admirable, but also I was quite surprised by it. And a point you made earlier to me, Michael, was that he's almost preempted some of this scholarly research on him. He thinks one step ahead. I, I have that feeling, but maybe Roz would like to, <laughs> to 
encounter, given that he's actually written a book on Roth. <laughs> Maybe he didn't find yeah. him. So, but I mean, Roth is hard, I think, for for scholars and critics to get their head around, simply you because mean because he 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 says he he sort of tries to arrange the, what people will say about him? I think so, to the degree that, put it this way, an awful lot of scholarly energy is uh, quite often dedicated to, to, to that. We're not supposed to do it after Roland Barthes wrote the death of the author, but nevertheless, a lot of people set about trying to discover the real author or to, mm-hmm. to talk about the wearing of masks or the way in which, you know, writers necessarily perform those kinds of things. And Roth's already telling us he's doing that a great deal of the time. Right, that's true. And um, uh, I think that, that means that there's a kind of, there's actually a, a very powerful critical intelligence at work in Roth. Uh, and mm-hmm. some of the time that means that our role as, as, as kind of receivers of his work is made more problematic. If Roth yeah. is just a um, storyteller, then we could intervene and say whatever we want to say. So what so she's easily misunderstood? Roth makes it, resists facile understanding, whatever. And we've talked about this already. You know, the desire to put him in a in an ethnic box or whatever categorization you want to come across or, or, or use or deploy. Um, mm-hmm. It's as unproductive as, say, only limiting yourself to the question of, indeed, misogyny. You know, because mm-hmm. that misogyny has to be seen within a context, too. You know, it needs to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Someone like or, Swift. Or, or the know? example of Joyce. Yep. In your in your world, would would you would people be happy just saying James Joyce is an Irish writer? And, and, and that's basically his identity, yeah. his, his, his achievement. Some do, but yeah, that's normally course. because they're not necessarily, <laughs> they're not necessarily serving the work as such, but serving another agenda. Uh, there's another right. agenda. You, you can begin to deploy Roth in all sorts of ways if you want to take it, you know, outside right. of his writing. But, but what you said about his critical intelligence is very interesting because in a sense, he, he's, he's only published one book of, of essays many, many years ago. But, uh, Unfortunately, I think his critical intelligence is manifested in, in what I think of as his excessive stage managing of his reputation. Most egregiously in this book that was published a few years ago by uh, a friend of his, Claudia Roth Pierpoint. She's yeah. no relation. But, yeah. um, and th- this was based on personal interviews with Roth, and the basic thrust of the book was to sell him to the American audience as um, just a, a regular, charming man who uh, loves everybody and that uh, <laughs> his work can be understood as uh, affirmative and uh, very reader friendly. So Which it, does it just seem a, like a, such a great gag. Really, yeah. <laughs> really doesn't. But I suppose he's conscious of that too, given, given the rival portrait that's out there from Claire Bloom's autobiography. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Definitely such, an effort to erase. I think so. Yeah. Ross, where do you think he stands in the American canon? Where would you place him? Do you think by trying even to place him, we're missing the point? Uh, I agree with Harold Bloom, who says he, that Roth is the major American prose writer after Faulkner. I think that that's a just estimate. I think that seems fair to me, too. I mean, and Frank Kermode, you know, if, if there's if Bloom's the great American canonical critic, Frank Kermode is the, the, the mm-hmm. greatest of the British critics. And he cites Sabbath's theatre as an absolutely unprecedented book and Mickey Sabbath as a, a new prototype of human experience. Like There isn't wow. anybody quite like him. And very, very few people actually ever managed to achieve that. So And quite absolutely. a scary read, I might add. Can I ask you, if you were to take three Philip Roth books to a desert island, what would they be? And for what reasons? Because he's published over 30 books. And one of the defining things about Philip Roth is his ability to recreate and recreate himself. Mm. So what books would you pick? Portnoy's Complaint has to be there because 
you can seriously honk with laughter at it while you feel this extraordinary kind of pain at work. Sabbath Theatre for a lot of the reasons that have been described earlier. And to be honest, then, I really struggle. But actually, I, recently I've been teaching Nemesis. And a lot of people kind of don't think that much of those those short last novels. But Nemesis and the Humbling, I think, are a, just an amazing achievement. And everyone, I'd love to take, yeah, I, I'd love to take those last three as a set. <laughs> and what about Human Stain? Uh, I don't... The Human Stain... It's a very um, interesting idea. I, th- I think actually the, it's a, that's a rare example where the the idea is such an extraordinary idea. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, I love the human stain, but you can actually feel the engineering in the book mm-hmm. trying to play the idea out with these massive gear changes and that massive plot reveal halfway through the book. Uh, the, the book is a wonderful extraordinary thing but there's a, a real strain in it at the same time for example there's something problematic in the human stain I think in that um, where he's prepared to forgive all sorts of at the sexual level the sort of sexual humiliation of characters is something that Roth seems to kind of en- he enjoys it throughout you know there's a kind of you know a hubris attached to the to the, the penis and that comes with things so in that novel the context of it is Monica Gate, and the kind of sympathy extends to to Clinton. Not that I particularly support Kenneth Starr. I think like it seems to me extraordinary that he kind of you know he fixes upon this image of the president and Monica Lewinsky frolicking like teenagers in the in the Oval Office, and that this therefore renders everything else okay. It's a peculiar kind of decontextualized kind of consideration yeah. of Clinton. And and Ross, what would what would make your top three? Uh, I have a, I'm very fond of the Ghost Rider from 1979, oh. which is uh, a, a novel I teach all the time. Mm-hmm. And great response. I think it's just a perfect work of, of art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Roth, in a, in a small, um, short novel, that uh, th- that's the one where he where he Zuckerman imagines uh, Anne Frank yes. returning from the dead or never having died. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's uh, to me the perfect introduction to Roth, and uh, he's really at the, at the very calm and uh, assured height of his powers. So the counter life mm-hmm. would be would be another one. I like Michael love the humbling, which is almost always ignored mm-hmm. um, late work several years ago, but it's very very powerful mm-hmm. and. Uh, Memorable. American Pastoral doesn't get a look in, considering he won, <laughs> he got the yeah, Blitzer. American Pastoral, yeah. American Pastoral is a, is a novel that I feel the way Michael feels about the human stain, I feel that going on in American Pastoral to, to an unfortunate degree. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, it's sort of a novel that wants to sum up the American experience in a way that's a, a little too um, glib. Mm-hmm. But it also has wonderful things in it. The, the first hundred pages are magnificent but I, think, I just think it's yeah. contrived at a certain level. I think European audiences and were particularly keen in fact on American mm-hmm. or Irish audiences I know here people were raving about American pastoral and the plot against America was very popular and you can say in those yeah. kind of history books but I sometimes I sometimes wonder if that was reflective of a desire for Roth to be a different writer oh here he's talking about America thank God here we go you know Roth's always written about America but not necessarily right. in terms of grand historical narratives and I think it's curious that people should prefer that because it's almost like they want him to become a different kind of writer. They want him to be someone like E.L. Doctorow, who probably does mm. that kind of thing better than Roth to Yeah, I think you're right. Also, conservative critics in America loved American Pastoral. They understood it as Roth homecoming, that he finally understood that the, the new left as a political movement was a disaster mm. and that he was now celebrating American virtue, which I think in a way, in, in a way is a legitimate point, but sort of 
affirms what I'm trying to say is, is that it, it's too friendly, it's too, too affirmative, mm. doesn't seem persuasive. And Ross, do you think he deserves a Nobel Prize or do you think they'll never give it to him? I, I agree with Michael. I think that he's, he's quote, too nasty, too, uh, <laughs> too enraged and satirical, too mocking. Mm. I, I would love him for, to win it. He certainly deserves it. But the Nobel Prize is such a political statement mm. that um, they want affirmation of it. What, what Faulkner, in a kind of sly way, said in his Nobel Prize speech, you know, the affirmation of the human spirit, which Roth, as a character, quote and says, how in the world could Faulkner really believe it if you've ever read a page of his work? <laughs> I like the idea of him refusing it. That would be good. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm sure he would <laughs> rejoice again. Especially since Bellow received. Oh, yes. I'd be surprised if he does. Dr. Michael Hines from DCU and Professor Ross Posniak from Columbia University in New York. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. The music today comes from Peter Broderick and Nick Cave. I hope you like them. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end this week's show with a nod and a wink to the gloriously rude and shameless Philip Roth from his book The Human Stain. Nothing lasts and yet nothing passes either and nothing passes just because nothing lasts. Thought-provoking all right. Have a great bank holiday weekend.
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.